Now, when I meet up with young men and read the Bible with them, and in particular when I, read the, when I meet up with young men who are interested in um, gospel ministry, um, they're, they're looking ahead and they're thinking, maybe I would like to serve Jesus with my life. There's one book of the Bible that I most frequently read with them one-to-one when we meet up together, um, and that book is 2 Corinthians. Uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending, um, in a large part of the book, his ministry, uh, his gospel ministry, his ministry of proclaiming the message about Jesus, uh, what I call the, the gory glory of the gospel um, in 2 Corinthians. Uh, and when we read that book, there are, there are a couple of verses that, that puzzle, um, that are strange, that they don't understand when we read them. Let me read them to you. Uh, it's from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says this. You may be familiar with these words. Paul says, For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. Now, so far, so good. He's using a metaphor and he's saying, um, as we go around and proclaim this message of Jesus, we're like an aroma. We're, we, we're a wafting smell out into the community, um, the smell of life or the smell of death. But then Paul says something really strange. He says, and who is equal to such a task? Who is equal to such a task? And most of the young blokes I read this go, what? Who's equal? I'm equal to such a task. I am ready to stink for Jesus. Let's go. Um, And it's because I think they don't understand what's going on in this verse. They don't truly understand the gory glory of the gospel. They don't know the cost of what it means not just to be the aroma of life, but to be the stench of death, even as you testify to the Lord Jesus. Now they will, if they continue along that path, come to understand that. Um, But it's often the thing that that we find puzzling. Um, Why do people um, turn away from Jesus? Why does Jesus inspire not just love but hate and fear as well? But it shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because it's what happened to the very first Messiah, the very first big anointed king, to David. See, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, we meet David, we meet this young Messiah. He's not long been anointed by Samuel, um, anointed as the the next, well, God's choice of king, the king after God's own heart. And he's just gone out and performed the, the, the big, great, defining act of God's Messiah. He saved God's people. And that's what we would have seen last week from chapter 17. And chapter 18 begins with him basically coming out after this defeat of Saul, of of Goliath. And there's a kind of a question, I mean, what do you do after that? What comes after that? It's such a big thing. This is the big moment. I mean, if this was a movie, if 1 Samuel was a movie, we'd be rolling credits after chapter 17. This is the moment. This is the climax. Um, But in God's economy, in 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 God's way of viewing things, he wants us to learn some important lessons. And so the story continues. 
And David comes down from defeating Goliath and he goes to work for Saul. As a matter of fact, Saul doesn't let him go home. Um, Saul recruits him like he does with a lot of champions in Israel and adds him to his, his list of champions. He goes to work for Saul. And one of the things you really notice as you read through chapter 18 is that David is a success. Okay, you see it there in verse 5. Whatever Saul sent David to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. He just went from strength to strength. It's like Goliath was a beginning. And it pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. You see it again uh, in verse 14. Um, In everything he did, he had great success. And it's repeated again at the end of the chapter. David is successful. Why? Well, you see it there. It's because the Lord was with him. In verse 14, it says, In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. Now, we already know this because just as David was anointed with oil as the Messiah, the anointed one, the Spirit of God rushed upon him in chapter 16. The Spirit of God came upon him um, to serve God. And the, the Messiah, the one who has God's Spirit, who's been anointed with oil, serves God by rescuing God's people from their enemies. And so David, God's Messiah, goes out and he's very successful in everything that he does in rescuing God's people from their enemies. It's the mark of God's king. The other thing you see in chapter 18 are two big reactions to God's Messiah. Two marked reactions. Um, The first reaction you see there is love. People loved David. Jonathan, it says, the the king's son loved David in verses 1 and 3. The people, though, also loved David. So down in verse 16, the last verse we read this morning, all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. The people loved David. Uh, And also um, Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. It says in verse 20 that she was in love with David, and again in verse 28. Even Saul, to some extent, began by kind of liking David. He recruits him and he sends him out um, into his army. But I want to suggest in this chapter there are, well, there are different kinds of love. And some of these loves are destined not to last because of the kind of love they are. You can see that with Michal's love for David, the the daughter of Saul. She's fallen in love with David. But has she fallen in love with the man or with the part that he plays? She admires him for who she is. There's this passionate love for David. But one of the things you notice as you read further through 1 and 2 Samuel is that that is a love that fades. Um, And in the end... She despises him. So a love that begins with a great passion for David, for the Messiah and who he is, ends in bitterness. And the crowds love David, the Messiah. And I think we can really appreciate their love for him 
They love him because of what he's done. It's a very normal kind of, of affection. I mean, just in the last chapter, they were facing death and defeat and slavery at the hands of the Philistines. And this young hero went out and he saved them. He rescued them. Of course they're going to love him. He goes out and he fights battles on their behalf and he wins and he's successful. Of course they love him. He's a winner. It's hard not to love a winner. But I think, well, I think one of the things we see again as we read on is it's a footy crowd kind of love. You ever been to a, a, a sport of some kind and, and you, you watch the crowd, the home crowd, and the home crowd are loud and they cheer for their team while they're winning. And what happens when the game turns and their team's not winning? The crowd goes quiet. And then they kind of start to leave if the game gets really bad. It's a fickle kind of love, isn't it? The love of a crowd. You know, they're, they're with him because he's done stuff for them. It's personal. But it's a fickle kind of love. All very normal. But there's a third kind of love in this chapter. And it is, I suggest, an unusual kind of love. An abnormal love. And that's the love of Jonathan for David. Now, why is that so strange? Well, it's because of who Jonathan is to start with. Jonathan is the son of Saul. He's the oldest son of Saul. He is the crown prince. He is the one who would normally inherit the kingdom when Saul dies. Jonathan ought to see David the way Saul sees him, shouldn't he? If anyone should see David, this young up-and-comer, as a threat, it would be Jonathan, wouldn't it? And yet Jonathan doesn't see David that way. He loves David. It says it twice, just so we get the point in verses 1 and 3. And how does he express that, that love for David? Well, there are three things he does. He, it says there in verse 1, he's one in spirit with David. What it literally says is he nicked himself to David. He's committed to him. Now that's not a, I think in, in today, our day and age, the way we speak about love, it's always got to be this kind of, this, this sexual thing and so we look for that everywhere we go but that's not what this is talking about. The word here for knit together is the same word that is used of Jacob's love for his son Benjamin. That he was knit to his son, that he, he loved him so much that he was, well Benjamin was the one he loved the most of all his sons. And it's speaking that here, it's speaking of that kind of intimate friendship, that, that connection, that love for another person. That's the love that Jonathan has for David. It is unusual, um, atypical. But he doesn't just love David, he cuts a covenant with David in verse 3. Now, a covenant is a very peculiar thing. It's not a normal thing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't meet you and, and we strike up a conversation over morning tea and we find that we become fast friends. Perhaps we went to the same high school. Who knows? And we become fast friends and, 
And then I say, well, let's, let's make a covenant together. It's not a normal thing, and it wouldn't have been a normal thing back then. A covenant was an unusual thing, almost extreme. A covenant committed your life to someone. It was a life and death thing. In a, when you cut a covenant, what you literally did was cut an animal in half and you passed between the pieces of the animal. You committed yourself to that person and it was a life and death choice. To break a covenant was, well, it was to die. And yet Jonathan connects himself to David in that way. Life or death. I'm committed to you. And then the third thing, that, the third way that Jonathan shows, throws, shows his love for David is he gives him his clothes. Now that's odd. He gives him his clothes. Now we've already seen this, haven't we? Those of you who were here last week, you might have noticed that as you read through chapter 17. Because in chapter 17, Saul gives, Jonathan, gives David his, his clothes as he goes and fights Goliath. It's a very symbolic action to do that. See, it's not just that, that Jonathan was giving David his favourite outfit. He's going, here's my favourite footy jersey. You wear that and that will mean we're mates. No, Jonathan is the crown prince and the clothes he wears are the clothes of the king's son. His clothes are a sign of his status, of who he is. And when he hands his clothes over to David, what he's saying is, that's you now. It's like abdicating who he is. Jonathan gives up his claim to the kingship here, symbolically, by handing his clothing over to David. And it's something that he expresses in later chapters when he asks David to remember him when David becomes king. This is a truly extraordinary and unusual love. He knit himself to David. So much so that he made a covenant with David that committed his life to him. And he abdicated himself to David. He made David his king in effect. It's a very unusual love. And I want to suggest that, that looking at Jonathan, he's very different to our relationship with Jesus, and yet he's very similar as well. Um, Jonathan's relationship to his Messiah, to David, is very, very different to our relationship with Jesus because, well, we're not the king's son, are we? Uh, Jonathan's a very different kind of person. Yeah, I guess he had more to give up. But I want to suggest it's actually very similar at, at the same time. Because the message of the Messiah, the message that God's Messiah has been revealed, has been proclaimed, is a call for us to love him. And the question that Jonathan asks every one of us is, do you love him? Matter of fact, to become a Christian, um, well, this is what it could be called. To become a Christian is to love God's Messiah is to love Jesus. And those three things that Jonathan does are not such a bad fit in the end. Because God has revealed his great king, his great king who saves his people, who rescues us, he calls us to love him, to knit ourselves to him. 
to be gripped by him. And we know our king has made a covenant for us, an agreement for us with his own blood, his own body. And it's a life or death thing, isn't it? We cling to our Messiah, we cling to God's king, the Lord Jesus Christ, for life itself. It is life or death, isn't it? And lastly, our king asks us to give up our clothes. Have you given Jesus your clothes? It's a good question, isn't it? Have you abdicated your life to Jesus? Have you given up ruling yourself and given that role to the one who God says owns it, the Lord Jesus? That's what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? And all of us at one time or another, if we're believers in Jesus, will have experienced this very thing. And if you're out there this morning and you're, perhaps you're someone who's been to church for a while, but you're, you're wondering about what it means to commit yourself to Jesus, to become a Christian, well, this, in effect, is what it means to entrust yourself to Jesus. Have you given up your clothes to Jesus? Have you made him king of your life? And have you given all of your clothes to Jesus? Or just one or two things? Is this king the king of your family? Is he the king of your career, of your work, of the job that you do day by day? Or is that something you keep for yourself? Is he the king of the money he gives you? Lots of questions like that we could ask. Have you given Jesus your clothes? Do you trust him? Do you love him? Have you given your life to him? Um, There's one model. Um, The love for the Messiah. But Saul is also a model in this chapter. Jonathan's not the only one. There are two family members here who are at odds. Saul is also a model here. He teaches us something about responding to God's king. And it all seems okay to begin with. Uh, Saul, after all, fates David at the end of chapter 17. He's he's basically done his job for him, so that's kind of nice. The fact is that Goliath, what do you notice about Goliath? What's the big noticeable thing about Goliath? He's tall. He's large. Larger than life. Who is the other tall man in 1 Samuel? Saul. Saul, the people's choice for king, the one who would go out and fight their battles for them and win for them. 1 Samuel 17 is in some ways a direct challenge to the people's choice of king. And what we see there is that he fails and he fails miserably. And so he's very grateful that this young man, David, steps up. We know, we've, we've got the backstory. we've read chapter 16 and so we know, we're in the know that David is the anointed king, he's the replacement. When God rejected Saul as king in chapter 15 and said, I reject you and I've, I've found somebody else who's after my own heart, we know the answer, don't we? It's David. He's the one whom God has chosen. He's the king of God's choice. And we know why that is as well, because he's the Messiah, he's the king who trusts the Lord who does what he does in his name. 
And so at the end of chapter 17, Saul's grateful, but he's unaware. He doesn't really know what's going on yet. But it doesn't take him long to twig because he knows he's already been rejected. Samuel spoke that word to him in chapter 15 and then never spoke to him again. And so ever since that moment, Saul has been wary. He's been on the lookout for any threat to his kingship. He wants to cling to his kingship. He does not want to give his clothes away again. Last week we saw Saul happy that David took his place, fought his fight, did his job. But now, in this chapter, he begins to make the connection. What we already know. He begins to see David as a threat. And that will be, this will colour the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. Saul in this chapter becomes David's enemy. And that will be one of the defining moments for the rest of the book. Um, And it is a great book to read, to watch the sufferings of God's Messiah over the ensuing chapters. Here is the beginning of the threat. And it all starts with a song. Have a look at verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. Why don't we do that more as a church? Where's the dancing gone? I don't know. Anyway, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. There it all begins with a song. It begins so innocently. People are trying to celebrate Saul and David alongside him. But what does Saul see? Well, he sees through the eye of somebody who wants to cling to what he has, someone who's petty. And petulant, he's galled by the song. He begins to see David as a threat. It doesn't take long, does it? On the way back from killing Goliath. And there are two main ways that Saul tries to deal with David as he begins to see him as a threat. Um, The first way is direct violence. You see that there um, straight away in verses 10 to 11. An evil or injurious spirit comes upon Saul, and we've seen this from chapter 16. Um, Saul, Saul is a man who he clings so tightly to what he has. It messes with his mind. And Saul tries to kill David himself. And you might think, well, David, David, why doesn't he twig to this now? Well, it's perhaps because David has been playing the the heart for Saul before, back in chapter 16. And and so David's used to these moods of Saul, these violent temperamental moods, and perhaps he just doesn't connect it uh, with with, uh, Saul's murderous intent towards him in particular. Maybe it's just Saul's a bit of a nutbag, and I don't know if he doesn't make the connection or not. There's one thing, Saul's directly violent, and you see that once again in in the chapters coming up. He gets more and more personally violent, even towards his own son. 
But the second action Saul takes is a lot more cunning. He has a cunning plan. He wants the Philistines to do his work for him, which is ironic given chapter 17. He puts David into the army and throws him into battles, hoping that David will die, that the Philistines will grind him down. And so David's success is a continuing and ongoing and building threat for Saul. Every time Saul sends him out, David succeeds, and then ah, it just gets worse and worse. You know, verse 15, when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. And so Saul has to think of another cunning plan. And his second cunning plan involves marriage, a marriage in two parts. First, the bizarre, abortive kind of attempt to marry him to his older daughter. Um, and we're not really sure whether David rejects that, um, the marriage to Merab, or whether Saul just kind of reneges on his commitment. But later when he sees that, his younger daughter, Michal, is, is passionately in love with this young Messiah. He thinks, here's my chance. And so we have this kind of, if it wasn't so violent and macabre, it would be funny story of the Philistine foreskins. He wants to send David out to get him killed and he thinks if I give him a hard enough task, then surely one of these Philistines will kill him. One of them will kill him. But instead, like with everything else, the Lord is with David and he succeeds and he piles up not 100 but 200 foreskins in a bag in front of Saul. And so, after all that, after even he's, he's, oh, he has to give his daughter in marriage to this guy, he was hoping he'd be dead by now. And so, verse 28, when Saul realised, finally he realises that the Lord is truly with David, he became still more afraid of him and remained his enemy the rest of his days. There's the conclusion of the chapter. Saul tries to be deceptive and manipulative. He's violent and nothing works. The only effect is by the end of this chapter, he is David's implacable enemy. This is it. It's him or David. There's another model for responding to the Messiah. And once again, just like with Jonathan, I want to suggest we are completely different to Saul. And yet we're also quite similar, much the same. Saul, after all, is a king, isn't he? He's very different to us. He's almost like a pantomime character in this, in this, this story of 1 Samuel 18. He's a parody. And with pantomime people, we know when the... When the when the clap sign goes up, we clap and cheer for the hero. And when the boo sign goes up, we boo for the, the villain. And we know Saul's a villain, and so we boo. But we don't really connect with Saul. We don't understand Saul. But I want to suggest we're a lot like Saul. Because we too can see Jesus as a threat. And certainly before we were Christians, that's how we saw him, weren't we? Didn't we? When we heard of him... He threatened us. He was a threat to my personal sovereignty. 
I wanted to live my life my way. And Jesus stood in the way of that. And the only difference between Saul and I is Jesus didn't stand right physically in front of my face so I could knock him down. We can see Jesus as a threat. Now, when we become Christians, this is one of the big things that changes, isn't it? We no longer see him as a threat. We see him as our saviour. We see him as our, our glorious king who loves us and does us good and rules us for our good. We willingly give our lives to him. We love him. And yet, over time, can we not see Jesus as a threat as well? Isn't that one of the temptations we face in our lives? To see his rule as a threat to our ambitions for ourselves. As a threat to our sense of personal security and safety. We begin to see our our sense of ourselves, our sense of our personal security and safety tied up with what we do. What we can gain. What we can achieve. And we forget it's tied up with our king. We forget it's tied up with the saving work of Jesus. And so we can be tempted to see him as a threat. And there's a second question for us. Do you love Jesus? Do you sometimes see him as a threat? Those two reactions to, um, to David, to the Messiah, it, it shouldn't surprise us again that they characterise... Um, people's reactions to God's great Messiah, David's greatest son, Jesus the Christ. This week at university, our second week, um, we're looking at Matthew chapter 2. And in Matthew chapter 2, we meet Jesus. He's, he is revealed as the king. The Magi come from the east, you might remember, in Matthew chapter 2, and they come to Herod's court. And they come asking the question, where is the king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him, to bow down to him, to connect ourselves to him. They come to Herod's court though. And just like Saul, Herod's very similar to Saul. You know, Saul has been rejected as king. In a sense, he's sitting on that throne under false pretenses. He should no longer be there, but he clings to that throne. Well, Herod's very similar. Herod's not even a Jew. His family were imported in to rule over the Jewish people, and he's supported, propped up by the Romans. He's an intruder, interloper. He's a, he's a false king in a way, but he clings to that throne. And when he sees a threat, he acts like Saul. And that's the story in, in Matthew chapter 2, isn't it? There are two very different responses to God's, the, the revealing of God's Messiah. One reaction is to bow down to him, to see him as the king, to worship him. And the other reaction, the reaction of King Herod is to see him as a threat, to try to kill him, which is what Herod does. Exactly the same reactions. And it's not just King Herod, the other rulers in Israel, even the legitimate rulers, saw Jesus as a threat. So you get to John chapter 11, and Jesus has just been going from strength to strength because because the Lord is with him. He does what he does in the power of God's spirit. He is God's anointed king. 
And so the rulers, the leaders of God's people, they see him as a threat. And in John chapter 11, they get together and they say, what are we going to do? You know, if this keeps going, we're going to lose our place. We are going to be on the outer because this guy is going to take over. And so they plot to kill him. See, those of us who believe in Jesus should not be surprised, should we? We shouldn't be surprised at those reactions. They've always been reactions. And that footy crowd kind of, of love that we saw amongst the crowds of Israel, um, you know, it's only a couple of chapters later that they're the people who are betraying David to Saul. Even his own clan, his own family, betray him to Saul. Right? So that, that's the footy crowd mentality. They abandon David very quickly when he's on the outer with Saul. And the same thing happens with Jesus. The crowds are so with him. Matter of fact, in, in this meeting in chapter 11 of John, the, the Jewish leaders are, are concerned because of the crowds and how much they're for Jesus. But it's only a couple of days. It's a measure of a few weeks. And the same crowds who shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, bay for his blood, crucify him, crucify him, in front of Pilate. There are the crowds. There are lots of people in our world who have a superficial kind of love for Jesus, don't they? A footy crowd kind of love. He's all right and he was a good teacher. But when he threatens their sovereignty, when he calls on them to bow down to him as their king, to trust in them as the one who will save them, well, they turn on him. They bay for his blood. So don't be surprised, friends, when Jesus is the stench of death to those around you. You're going to see that, I guess, in the next few weeks. It's hard, isn't it? We put on these events. We've got the restaurant event with John Anderson coming. It's going to be so good. And yet we struggle, don't we, to ask our friends to go. Why is that? Well, we know why, don't we? We fear the way they'll react might cost us a friend to do that. It's hard because we know that many people who hear about Jesus, they smell death. The thing that ought to give us great courage, though, well, two things ought to give us great courage. One is what we know about Jesus. He is God's king. He is the one who died and who rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. And he did that for us. We will be raised up in him, through him, because of him, not because of ourselves. And that ought to give us great courage and great hope. But the other thing that should give us hope is that Jesus is not always the stench of death, is he? He is the aroma of life. And I take it if you're sitting here today, that's something you know of him that you came to him and you smelled life. And there'll be those among our friends, our family, those we work with, uh, the families of kids at our schools, for whom that will also be the case. And so we endure in our town, a town that by and large smells death. We do that because of the aroma of life, of the offer of life. One little extra thing to add 
at the end. I think as we read through this book, one thing we should learn very clearly and very well is do not put your hope in princes. Now you might be thinking, princes? I only know Prince Charles and there's no way I've got my hope in him. Um, But there's a point being made here. Do not entrust yourself to the rulers of this world. And we can make that mistake, can't we? We can tie our hopes and dreams and sense of security up with those who, who rule in our society. And I just want to say, do not put your hope in political parties to do for you. Now, we need to be involved with those, and it's right and proper that we're involved in the political process in our country. We ought to vote and make that count. We ought to even be engaged with political parties, but beware of investing all your hopes in those. Do not have your hopes in the National Party or the Coalition or the... Well, I don't imagine there's many Labor or Greens voters here, but there might be. Do not put your hope in them. Do not have your hope in one nation as if suddenly they will get you and they will do for you. Do not have your hope in Cory Bernardi's new Conservative Party. Do not trust in princes. We've come to trust in God's great King. And we know he is the only one who will do for us because he's died for us and he's risen from the dead. How about we pray together? Our Lord God, our Father, we want to thank you for the way you revealed your your Messiah to Israel. We want to thank you for David, for what he shows us about your, your great king, for how he points us towards the Lord Jesus. Thank you for showing us so clearly from the very beginning that the Messiah is somebody who divides the world. He divides the world around him. Help us not to be discouraged at a world that rejects him, that hates him. Help us to see as well that you are working to bring people to him. For people to smell life. Help us to entrust ourselves to him and him alone for our life and eternity. And not to be tempted to see him as a threat. Or to entrust ourselves to worldly kings, princes or parties. And help us, help us to have courage in our community to live out this word that we believe and to see those who you, well, to see those who smell life in the Lord Jesus come to love him, to entrust their cells to him, to give their lives completely to him. And we ask that we would be given the great privilege of seeing that in the coming weeks and months and years in our family, in our friends, our workmates, in our community, in our world. Amen.